listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. So uh, the past five days, me and my oldest, Axel, we have been in, yeah, he's older than you, King. Um, we have been in Moab, Utah, and we went out there for um, just a, a bit of a vacation, and uh, we went out there to, to see some national parks, state parks, that kind of thing. We did some off-roading, and uh, here's a couple of videos. Haley, you can roll. There's a couple of videos I wanted to show y'all, and here's what I want you to see. Here's the analogy, okay? So Axel is right here in the black and yellow jacket, and so for this, for this analogy, he's Jesus, okay? So Axel is Jesus. He didn't want me to show this video, but that's okay. And in this analogy, uh, right here, my brother Matt's actually driving that vehicle, and so he's us. And in the next video, uh, I'll be driving the vehicle, and so that's us also. But you'll see here that my brother can't see what the, what the road, what the path, what the rocks in front of him are doing. He's got to keep in mind Axel right here. And so Axel is what's called the spotter. And so Axel is giving him hand controls and directions so that Matt can navigate to get up and over these rocks. Pretty well. Hey, hey, now, if you were to go there by yourself, you couldn't see what's going on in front of you. Good job, AJ. And here's the next video. And that's all Axel. Now, you can't see Axel in this video, but he's, he's right down here, and I'm driving this vehicle. I can't see what those rocks are, but Axel can. And in fact, he went out there with one of the instructors and mapped out the course of where each tire was going to go. Because if I go too far to my left, I'm going to roll the vehicle. If I go too far to the right, I'm going to roll the vehicle. But thanks to Axel, I, I know exactly where to go, all right? So as we look at this passage this morning, this bit of prophecy, here's what I want us to see, is we don't know exactly what all of these things mean. We don't know exactly all of the details in front of us, but we must keep our eyes on Jesus, on Axel, right? Because he is the one who's going to guide us. He can see all that has happened and all that is going to happen right there in front of us. So I don't want us to get caught up in the details of this passage and miss Jesus. That's the one who, whom this passage is about. So we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus this morning. Keith already read the passage to us. I want us to jump in. It, it kind of breaks down into two sections. The first four verses are kind of easy. The second four is um, why I get paid. So uh, we're going to look at these. So the first four verses you see here, you notice, uh, so Daniel's been praying through the first 19 verses. He's praying for mercy. And I would encourage you, if you haven't been following us through the book of Daniel, to go back and listen. You can listen to the podcast or online on YouTube on Facebook, that kind of thing, to catch up, to understand where the people are. And right now they have been in exile for almost 70 years. They were in exile because of disobedience, because of their idolatry, like we just read in the kids' story, because God gave them his law and he said, here's how you are to live, here are the sacrifices you are to make. They disobeyed, they thought they knew their, their own way, they thought they could go their own way. And as a result, God sent them into exile, both as a punishment and as we'll see, as a mercy to them. And so as exile is nearing its end, Daniel cries out for God's mercy. He pleads the heart and the character of God. He doesn't say, hey, since we were in exile, we learned so much, we've grown so much. He says, no, we're still messed up. We still, we still are even, probably even in more need of your mercy today 
then we came into exile because we have not learned our lesson. So he prays, and then here's the response from God. And so we begin in verse number 20, and we're going to walk through these verses. Um, we're going we're gonna, to uh, kind of scooch through these first four verses, and then we're going to settle in these last four verses. So verse number 20 while I, this is Daniel, was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill, um, for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision of the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Notice what Daniel is saying here, and we saw this last week. Daniel is not simply confessing his own sin because Daniel was a man of God. He was faithful to God. He was filled with the Spirit. He's confessing the sins, and he's saying, the sins of my people. He is in sackcloth and ashes. He is the one fasting and praying. He's not saying, hey, those people over there. He's identifying with them. That's what a good leader does. They identify with their people in love the same way that Jesus Christ did as well, that we'll see. But you notice here in, the, in verse 21, you'll notice that he is a man of God. What does it say right there at the very end? At the time of the evening sacrifice. Now, the evening sacrifice had not occurred since 586 BC, almost 70 years prior to this. But notice Yahweh's clock is Daniel's clock. He still sees things from God's perspective, his day is still aligned in the way that God set up the day. Pretty wild. So one of those little details that we can just easily skip over. Oh, it's time for evening sacrifice. But there had not been an evening sacrifice for decades. Yet he still says, my spiritual identity matters most. It's time for evening sacrifice. Then verse number 22 he made me understand, this is Gabriel, he explains it to him. He made Daniel understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Now, Daniel doesn't know, he's, he's sitting there praying, he's like, man, I, I hope God can hear my cries for mercy. I really hope he hears my pleas to him. And Gabriel comes and says, yes. He does. Not because your prayers mean so much, not because you use all of the right words, not because you've, you've done more good things than bad things this week. It says, because you are greatly loved, because of the character and the nature of God, your prayers are heard. Therefore, the very last sentence there in verse 23, therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. God confirms that he hears because Daniel is greatly loved. Friend, we have access to the heart of a good, good father because he is good and because he loves us. He pursues us. He's the one who runs us down for you are greatly loved. And can I just tell you this morning, and this is where I was going to probably land the plane, um, but for you this morning, if you are a child of God, even as you sit here, as you prone to wonder, as that's you, as that's me, you are still, yet this morning, you are greatly loved because of who God is. So those are the first four verses. I told you we'd be quick about those, right? So that's where we're setting that up, Daniel, saying, I'm going to tell you 
I'm going to give you this revelation because you are greatly loved. Now, as we look at these last four verses, a couple of things I want us to keep in mind. First, there are both closed-handed and open-handed issues. The closed-handed is this. We're going to hold this tightly. We're not going to let go of this. Nothing can shake this. And we've talked about closed-handed and open-handed doctrine. Closed-handed, this is what we must consider. The the closed-handed about these next verses is this. These verses are about Jesus. Nothing else, Okay. Closed-handed, we're gonna hold on to this tightly. These verses are about Jesus. Adam came, he was, he was created, sorry, Jesus came, but Adam was created, he was, he was formed, and he failed to live the way that he was designed to live. Sin entered into the world. As a result, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, had to come. He had to live perfectly to fulfill the law, to fulfill the way that Adam was designed to live. Jesus comes, he lives He is put to death. He suffers the wrath of the Father. He takes on abomination. He takes on suffering, that which we deserved. He was literally killed and then he was raised to life. He was resurrected. That's what these verses are pointing to. We're gonna hold on to that tightly. But there are four things that we see. These are the open-handed issues. The first one is this, and most of these are questions, but the first question that we have to answer is this, and we're not going to be able to answer these perfectly. These aren't going to be closed-handed. So we're going to have open-handed. There can be some, some multiple interpretations. We can, we can be best friends and still disagree on these. And we may, and that's okay. But these are open-handed. Our salvation is not right on these. The first question is this. Are these events past history? Are they future prophecy? Or are they a combination of both? Are they past Are they present or are they a combination of both? The second thing is this, are these numbers, and so we're gonna see this 70 times seven, are they literal or are they symbolic? Now, are they, are they literal? Can we, can we go back and count up the days and the years until we get to Jesus perfectly and get to the rebuilding of all these different things? Or are they symbolic in the same way that Jesus said, forgive 70 times seven? Was that literally? Once I get to 490 times, I can stop forgiving you? Okay, so open hand. We don't, we don't know exactly if these are symbolic or literal. The third question is this. How long is a year? Because he talks here, we're going to talk about years. And so is the year a lunar year like we deal with? So 365 and a quarter day, which is why we have a leap year every four years, because we have to make up for that quarter year. Okay, turns to a whole day. Or is it a Jewish year, which is 360 days? Those are the two options, and and we don't know exactly. It just says a day. The last thing is this. There are multiple decrees that went forth for when Jerusalem was supposed to be built. So which decree are we talking about? Is it one from Jeremiah? Is it one from Cyrus? Is it one from Derek? We don't know exactly. So which decree is this? Uh, There could be several of them. We're not exactly sure. Here are our options when we reach these passages, though. We have three options. The first option is this. The first option is to skip these passages. And many pastors do. Many churches skip these these verses. So you're probably really familiar with the first six chapters of Daniel with the narrative portion, Daniel in the lion's den, before uh, the golden statue. We're familiar with those. But a lot of times when you look at churches, when they do a series on Daniel, it's like, okay, chapter six, boom, we're done. All right, let's skip over to an epistle in the New Testament. But when when we get here, we could skip them. The second option is this, we could become dogmatic. 
And this is where we get the folks who have different charts drawn on napkins with crayons. We have tinfoil hats. Uh, we have, uh, this is where we have people with bomb shelters. They, you know, this, these are the kind of folks. We become dogmatic because we figured out exactly what these verses mean. And it's like, no, 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 we're going to keep these open-handed. Because a few weeks ago, we talked about the guy, right? 88 reasons why the rapture is happening in 1988, okay? That dude is one of these guys, tinfoil hat. You know, like he, the government was, you know, he didn't have an Alexa in his house because they were listening in because your life is so interesting. So that's the second option. The third option is this. This is where we're gonna land with this, okay? So we're in this passage. We're not gonna be dogmatic. The third option is, and this is us this morning, okay? At least it's me. I want you to go there with me. Thirdly is this, is to be ready. To be ready, We've said this, the official stance of our church that I didn't clear with the pastors first is this, on eschatology, is four words, Jesus is coming back. So be ready. Okay, I got a thumbs up from Caleb. Okay, Chris is already asleep. Okay, so, okay, so we, he, he did Dory gave me a thumbs up because she, she speaks for him anyway. So, uh, but we're going to be ready. Friends, we're not on the planning committee for when Jesus shows up. We are on the welcoming committee. We are to be ready when he shows up. We don't know exactly how or what, but we know the who. We know Jesus is coming back and he's going to judge the living and the dead. So be ready. Don't miss that. Okay, everybody good? Okay, we're going to jump into these verses before we do a quick history lesson. So the, the Jews, the Hebrews there, the Israelites are in exile because of their disobedience. At the end of the 70 years, Cyrus makes a decree and he allows the Jews to go back into their home country. And, and we're going to, this is actually what we're going to be looking at, but real quickly, he's going to say, y'all can go back into Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, rebuild the city. So they go back there and it takes them 52 days to rebuild the temple there. In the meantime, they're still fortifying the city, those kinds of things. There are other Jews, Hebrews, Israelites that are there already in the city. Jeremiah is riding from Jerusalem. They're still there. So the Jews come from exile, they go back into Jerusalem, and they rebuild the city. At that point, there's about 400 years, give or take, 400 years of silence. So we get to the end of the book of Malachi, okay? The, uh, the great Italian prophet, Malachi, at the very end, just kidding, some of you are like, what? Is that, is that the Apocrypha? Okay, Malachi, all right? That's how we say it. So after Malachi, we have about 400 years of silence, radio silence, until we get to the New Testament, until John the Baptist hits the scene. John the Baptist hits the scene. He's the cousin of Jesus. Then Jesus is born. He's baptized by John the Baptist. His ministry begins for three and a half years. At the end of three and a half years, Jesus is put onto the cross. He's crucified. He's dead. He's buried. He's raised back to life. Then he comes back for 40 days. He ascends to the right hand of, the God, of God the Father, where he is today. And then about 35, 37 years later, in 70 AD, that's when, and just a few years before that, in 68 AD, that's when the Jews were tired of Roman persecution. So there's what's called the Jewish revolt. The Jews revolt against Rome, and as a result, in 70 AD, uh, a Roman general named Titus, he comes and destroys, desolates the temple. And he actually there, he takes um, this uh, this statue to 
the planet Jupiter and puts it there in the middle of the temple. And so he desecrates the temple and the Jews didn't have to run and hide. Matthew chapter 24, it's not about Jesus' second coming. It's about that time, 70 AD, okay? So as we're looking at this, that's what this passage is pointing to, that history. Cyrus, go back, rebuild. They rebuild. 40 years of silence. John the Baptist, Jesus, he's back up in heaven. And now we have in 70 AD, the desolation, the destruction of the temple. Everybody good? Take a breath. Okay, now we're going to dig into that. And just for verification, if you go back, you can read historians about all of that, secular historians. Um, you can read guys like Josephus who are writing about all these things, who are writing down oral tradition from the vantage point of the first century. You can read uh, apocryphal books from the Old Testament, which aren't terrible. They're not part of the canon, but they're mostly historically accurate. You can read uh, all kinds of things. You can read the the First and Second Chronicles, it talks about these things. You can read Jesus talks about these, the destruction of the temple. Anyway, here's where we are. All right, verse number 24. So we see that's the, that's the idea, the picture, the history that we're looking at. Verse number 24, we're gonna notice what these 70 weeks bring. That's what I want us to, to look at first. Here's the big idea of this passage. Verse number 24. So here's the vision that Gabriel provides for Daniel. 70 weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Now, these are the six things, okay? What the, what, here's what the 70 weeks bring. Here's the good news for the people. They needed something good to hear because they are in exile. Gabriel says, here's what you can look forward to with the Messiah who is coming. These six things. First, he's going to finish transgression. He's going to become sin for you. Secondly, he's going to put an end to sin. We said this last week. We're still sinners. Like we still wrestle with that. But the promise is there. He's going to be sinless. Thirdly, he's going to atone for iniquity. So the punishment that we deserve, the wrath of God, is going to be put on him. He is going to atone. He is going to pay the price for us. Fourthly, he's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. Again, this is just straight out of verse number 24. That's it, these six things. There's going to be everlasting righteousness. He's perfect forever, for all time. Fifthly, he's going to seal both vision and prophet. So the, the prophecies of the Old Testament, they've pointed to Jesus. He comes in, he's going to fulfill those prophecies. And then lastly, he's going to anoint the most holy. And this is talking about Jesus. Some would say this may be talking about uh, a place there in the temple, the holy of holies or the most holy place. But this is about Jesus. He is the most holy. He is going to be anointed. We don't see in the Old Testament how the holy place is anointed. Only once when it's first created. But then all the other anointings that we see point to Jesus as being the most holy one. So that's what, big picture, that's what these verses are about. This is pointing to our Messiah. This is pointing to Jesus. Don't miss Jesus. So now I have to get into some of the details. We see here it talks about 70 weeks. If you see right there beside weeks, there's a little subscript. And if you have an ESV like me, it's the number three. 
That's important to note. If you don't have that, just trust me, it's here. You can look it up online or whatever you want to. But it says 70 weeks. Now, it doesn't literally say 70 weeks in the Hebrew, the language that this text was written in. It actually says 77s. So if you follow that little number three right there, the subscript, you can actually go down and you can see in italics, it says or sevens. And so they would understand this idea of 77s. And when we translate that, it's like, oh, 70 weeks. For our purposes today, and as we look at most prophetic apocalyptic literature, that often means 70 years. And so as he talks here about 70 weeks, each one of the days in those weeks represents a year. Everybody good with that? So if we have 70 weeks, it actually means 490 years. One week, seven years. So he says here there are 70 weeks that are decreed about your people. Where do we get that from? Leviticus chapter 25. You can go there with me if you want to. I'm going to read 17 verses out of Leviticus 25. Everybody okay with, if we read a little Bible, we good with that? I know we're going fast, but y'all are, y'all are okay. We can handle it. Chapter 25 in Leviticus, and here's where they would understand this. So we have the perspective. We look back at Jesus. We're looking forward to his second return. The Old Testament Jews, the Israelites, they had the perspective of Old Testament covenant with Moses and the law, covenant with Abraham, covenant with Adam, and they're looking forward to this new covenant to Jesus. And right there in the middle, we have this idea of renewal being in the form of the year of Jubilee or the Sabbath. Okay, so Leviticus 25, Moses writes about this. And this will be up on the screen if you, if you don't want to turn there. But the first seven verses say this. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall gather, uh, prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. For the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female servants, and for your hired servant and the sojourner who lives with you, and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. So notice, we have at the very beginning when God creates the world, he creates the world in six days. What does he do on the seventh day? He rests. And he sets up this model of renewal, of rest. And so he tells the people, work for six days, rest on the seventh day of the week. Here he says, for the land, he says, work the land for six years. In the seventh year, let the land rest. Let it rest be reminded that I'm the one who's providing for you. You don't have to keep working and working and working and working and working. I'm the one that's given you this land and this rest is a reminder of my provision, my sovereignty over you, over the land, over your time, over your efforts, over all things. This points to me as God. Then we pick up in verse number eight. Notice what he says. You shall count, and this is where we get this idea of seven we have this, uh, this picture of renewal, of refreshment, and we see here kind of the confusion around seven sometimes. That's why we look at Leviticus chapter 25. Moses says, you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. 
You shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. So notice this is the year of Jubilee that I was talking about. It shall be a Jubilee for you. And when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. Verse 11, that 50th year shall be a Jubilee for you. In it, you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. For it is a Jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the Jubilee. And he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price. And if the years are few, you shall reduce the price. For it is the number of the crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God. For I am the Lord, your God. What does this year of Jubilee point to? It points to God. Eventually, this points to Jesus. Now, if you notice, the reason that these Hebrews are in exile is because they had disobeyed the law of God. They had disobeyed the word of Moses there in Leviticus chapter 25. And so they had gone, and it was about 500 years. Uh, A quick aside, this passage is theological, okay? A big word for the study of God. This passage points to Jesus. This passage is not calendrical. I don't know if that's a real word or not. I think I made it up. But it's not about the calendar, okay? It doesn't, is that a real word? English teachers? Anybody? I don't know. Yeah, we'll just, we'll just say it's a real word. It, it doesn't point to the purpose of this. It's not to figure out what's the exact day. What are all the years? How do we add this up perfectly? We, 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 that's not the purpose of this. The purpose of this is to say they had disobeyed God for about 490 years from the time that they wanted a king. They had been disobeying God. So if you take 490 years, divide that out. How many Sabbaths had they missed? They had missed 70. How long were they in exile? 70 years. I just think it's interesting. Now, we're not going to dig into that and say, well, exactly. All we're saying is that God said, here's the way you are supposed to treat your weak. Here's the way you're supposed to treat your land, your lives. You haven't. We're going to to punish you for the same amount of time. So they had not obeyed the word of God when it came to the year of Jubilee for centuries. But notice what the year of Jubilee points to. The land is returned to owners. The servants are freed. This points to what Christ did when he came to free us from bondage. I said earlier that, this, uh, that the exile was a punishment and it was a mercy. It was a punishment because they had disobeyed. But it was also a mercy for these people because they needed a break in their calendar and they needed a break in their minds. They needed to rest. They needed to get away from just busy, busy, busy so that God could have access to their hearts. God wanted access to their hearts, first and foremost, not just to their hands, not just to their actions, but he had to say, let me get you away from being so busy. Friend, we can be busy and we can make more money because of it. We can uh, attain success and popularity and we can give ourselves and fill our minds with entertainment. But friends, when we are so busy, we are often going to miss Jesus. We often miss Jesus because we are so busy. And so as we see here, the people, they had gotten so busy that they had missed the promise of the Messiah. As we look at these next three verses, we're going to see these numbers, these events, these people. 
But the point of this passage, and we, we said last week, that this is the only chapter in Daniel where the word Yahweh is used because this chapter is about a covenant. It's Yahweh, creator God, reminding his people, this is the covenant that I have made with you. This is my covenant with you. And I want to remind you of this. The year of Jubilee is the picture of the covenant with Israel. Now today, looking back in 2023, looking back, we have Jesus. So I would plead with you, let's not be so busy with the details of life or the details of this passage that we miss Jesus. Jesus is there in the details. Let's look at verse number 25. He says this, and we're going to walk through, um, and we're going to look at the details of this. Now, just so you know, th these things are, um, this is an open-handed as far as what these things uh, talk about and some of the details. We mentioned that. I'm going to tell you as best as I can understand it and what the majority of theologians would say. This is the, as best as we can understand what the Hebrew text says here to us. But if there are other interpretations, applications, that's okay. We're still brothers and sisters, part of the same family. And we can disagree on some of those things. We're not going to miss Jesus in this. Verse number 25. He says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. So we have these 70 weeks, these 70 years. We have three different sections. First are the first seven weeks. The first seven weeks are this. So we have 49 years. That's when Jerusalem was going to be rebuilt. If, we, if, we, if you notice here in the passage, it, it says the anointed one, the prince. And in verse 25, this anointed one, the prince, and literally in the Hebrew, it says Messiah. This is talking about Jesus, and as you look at the passage, we think, okay, seven years for this, and then 62 years for this. Here's the point that, that the passage is making. It's going to take that seven plus the 62 years until we get to Jesus, and then until we get to Titus, until we get to the destruction of the temple. That's, that's the point of these. So the first seven years, uh, it points to a Jerusalem being rebuilt. If you go back and look at verse, uh, sorry, at Jeremiah chapter 29, we saw this. This will be up on the screen. But Jeremiah 29, 10 says, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And we saw that last week. And in the very next chapter in verse 18, Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord, behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound and the palace shall stand where it used to be. So here's the promise of God. When these 70 years of exile are complete, I will bring you back. And so now the, the, when Cyrus says you can go and rebuild the temple, that means the exile is over and these 70 weeks or these 490 years begin. So the word of Cyrus goes out. Eventually the people get back there during these seven weeks, give or take about 49 years. The temple is rebuilt. So we have, when it says uh, the going out of the word, that's the going out of the word of Cyrus, probably to rebuild the temple. So hope returns to the people of Israel. The temple is finished. Then we get to the very last sentence of verse number 25. We have the 62 weeks. So we have the first seven weeks. Then it says, then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. 
The 62 weeks is about 434 years, and there is a period of silence there. You notice there it says the squares and moats. Essentially what Daniel is saying is, okay, there was a time of hope, the city is rebuilt, and now this is just life. Life goes on. Nothing really happens during this period of silence. And notice Gabriel doesn't really say a whole lot about it. He's just like, yeah, 62 weeks, you know, there's, you know, it's just life. Life happens. So then we get to verse numbers, verses 26 and 27. We're going to walk through that. These two verses kind of go together. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. So during the 70th week, so here's the final week, we see two things. First, we see Jesus hitting the scene. This is when it says, uh, the anointed one shall be cut off. This is Jesus. Jesus is the one who is cut off. He is the one who is placed on the cross. He is cut off from a relationship with the Father while he's out there on the cross receiving his wrath. He's cut off from humanity. We're the ones who crucified him. And then it says, uh, and he shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come... The prince who is to come, this is not talking about their Messiah because Messiah is the one who is cut off. This is the prince who is to come. This is talking about Titus, the Roman general who led the destruction of the temple. He says here, the prince who is to come shall destroy the city, Jerusalem, and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with Des, uh, sorry, with a flood, and to the end thou, there shall be war. Talking about the Jewish-Roman war there from 68 to 73. He says here, desolations are decreed. If you look down at verse number 27, he talks about in the wing of abominations. There he's talking about the desolation is the destruction of Jerusalem, of the temple, and the abomination is the altar that he placed to Jupiter. So that's we talk about the prince who is to come. That's the destruction of Jerusalem, of the temple there. When we look at those two verses. Now, the other thing that we see, so we talk about the temple being destroyed. Let's talk about how we see Jesus here in this passage. So if you notice here, verse 27 elaborates a little more on this last final 70th week. Now, again, this is not exact. And they would understand this 70th week, this year of Jubilee to be longer in nature. So we're not saying, okay, well, how long, how many years did Jesus? We're not worried about those things. We're worried about how does this point to him? What did the life of Jesus look like? Now, it says here that he shall, in verse number uh, 27, he shall make a covenant, a strong covenant with many for one week. Now, literally, it says, Gavar Barir. Everybody say, Gavar Barir. That was decent. Okay, so that's in the Hebrew. What that means is that's, that's the language there for strong covenant. It doesn't mean a new strong covenant. Gavar Barir in the Hebrew means he is renewing or confirming a covenant that has been planned already. So we have here Jesus who comes in and makes a new covenant. And this is the covenant of grace. It says here in verse number 27, he put an end to sacrifice and offering. There was no longer a need for the old covenant of sacrificing animals because Jesus Christ was sacrificed as the perfect lamb. He put an end to the offering. And on the cross, right before he died, Jesus said, it is finished. The old covenant is gone. The new covenant of grace is brought in by my blood. The end of Daniel 9 points to whom? It points to Jesus. He's saying, this is about me. You 
children of disobedience, of exile, of idolatry. Here's your hope. Your hope is Jesus. You need his mercy. You need his grace. So then we have to figure out, okay, what does this half of the week mean? And I'll be honest, if you have something a little more legitimate uh, or a little more solid, that's fine. Uh, Let me know and I'll probably just agree with you, okay? But here's what we do have. The end of this verse, it talks about half of the week. It doesn't talk about the other half of the week, just so you know. And this is where we can, oh, well, here's it. Later it means this. And and we have, you know, thousands of years until we get, man, we we don't really know for sure. (laughs) We know it points to Jesus. That's about it. But notice what he says here. He will make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So we know that during this final week of Jesus' sacrifice, these three and a half days, that's the finished work of Jesus during his life. Again, the numbers aren't as important to the Jewish audience. What they know is that three and a half is a number of incompletion. It's an incomplete number. The other half of the week is yet to come. And I would make the case that currently we are living either in the middle of this final week and the second half of the, of the week is to come in the future with Jesus returning again, or we are in, not just between, right smack dab in the middle of this final week, but we are actually living through the second half of this final week. And here's why, because Jesus makes and confirms the covenant in the first half of the final week, and we are living as a result of that until he comes again. And so we, the kingdom of God is the final week, this new covenant. We're already there. He has inaugurated. He has started his kingdom, but his kingdom has not been consummated finally yet. And it will be when he returns. Now, some would say, well, the whole 70th week has already happened and, and the 70th week finished with Titus. That's fine. The beauty of this is we don't really know and we can still be friends, and afterwards we can go to Moe's, and that's okay. Four words, Jesus is coming back. That's what we see. And I would plead with you as we read these verses to not base your life on what you don't know, but base your life on what we do know. Jesus Christ did come the first time. He granted us a new identity He told us to live by faith, not by sight. We know that we have access to the heart of a good father. So we live and we thrive in the midst of that. And we love and we move toward others from that place. That's what we do know. And once we get that figured out, then we'll put our tinfoil hats on. And we'll figure out what the rest of this means. But until then, I would plead with you, as we look at these verses, and as we consider our lives, don't miss Jesus. Here are five things quickly I want to I say as we talk about that. This, this was going to be up on the screen, Isaiah 61. You can put it up there, Haley. Uh, I forgot about this. But Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. They say this, the Spirit of God, real quick, Luke 4, when Jesus hits the scene, and we saw this, uh, I don't know, a year, year and a half ago, when Jesus begins his ministry, he goes into the temple there and he pulls out the scrolls of Isaiah. He reads these verses. Essentially what Jesus is saying is that the year of Jubilee is here. I am starting the year of Jubilee. 
Take up my burden because it's easy. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I'm the one who's going to be doing the work to pay for your sin. You can't pay for your sin. You must simply have faith in me. So Jesus pulls out the scroll of Isaiah as he begins his ministry and says this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Here's the good news. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When the Jews would have heard that, they were thinking, oh, year of Jubilee. That's what Moses was talking about in Leviticus 25. Jesus is saying, yes, I'm fulfilling that in a ceremonial way, but even more so in a tangible, spiritual, moral way, I am releasing the bondage of your sin. I'm not just saving you from the old covenant. I'm saving you into this new covenant. Five things I want us to see. Firstly, you must not build your theology on an obscure text. We must not build our theology on these verses and say, well, this is how I'm going to live on these things that the Bible doesn't say. Any theology that misses Jesus is a bad theology. Any theology that misses Jesus is bad theology. Again, four words. Jesus is coming back. Therefore, be ready. Be ready. Secondly, we are longing, waiting, watching, serving, loving, and hoping while we're looking forward to Christ's return. Friend, the, the plan is in place. The plan is in place. We don't have to worry about what that is, but we have an incredible opportunity to serve each other here as the body of Christ and to take the good news to those around us who need to hear about Jesus. And we get to do that, not basing our eternity on if we win or if we lose or how people respond to us or how they treat us. No, the battle has already been won. So we get to move from a place of victory because of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we are called to a long obedience in the same direction. We're called to a long obedience in the same direction. No matter how distressing the times are, no matter what the spiritual warfare looks like for us, the enemy, he's in the crosshairs of God the Father. He's there in the crosshairs. And when it's time, he will be destroyed. We don't have to worry about that. We are called to obey from a place of love. That's it. Fourthly, the heart of God is for your good. If you notice verses 24 through 27, the confusing part of this passage, the passage that we spent the bulk of our time on, is in response to Daniel's prayer for mercy. The first 19 verses, Daniel is pleading for mercy. And what does God tell him through, the, through Gabriel's word? He said, your hope is in God. It's in a good, good father. Your hope is not in being back in the land of Jerusalem. Your hope is not going back into the promised land because guess what would happen when they, guess what happened when they went back to the promised land? They were still in the middle of very similar idolatry. 
because they were not pursuing the heart of a good, good father. The Jews went back to the land. They got the gift of God, but they still missed Jesus. When Jesus showed up, how did they treat him? Terribly. So they said, God, thank you so much for this gift of the land. Thank you for giving me this stuff. Consider your prayer life. Thank you for what you've done for me. And then they just missed Jesus. We want relief from our trials right now. Again, think of the things that we pray for because we want it done immediately, right now. Not next week, this week. We want a microwave God. We want the gifts that he provides for us without understanding his heart for us. And when we're forced to wait or when he doesn't respond immediately or the way that we think that he should, we miss the fact that he's doing this for our good. But the heart of God is for your good. So pursue that. Finally, the gospel is not a diving board into the Christian life, but it's the pool in which you swim. So we don't just jump off. Here's the good news of the gospel. Here's the good news. You can be free. You can receive his grace. You can do, here it is. Okay, now, now what does the Christian life look like? Okay, I got the gospel. I, I've got that. Now what else do I have to do? How do I obey? What about the blessings? What about my obedience? No, no. The good news of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done, that's the Christian life. That's it. We're born into sin. So the gospel is this, we're born into sin. Our works are insufficient. So Jesus came to save. And we saw those six things right there, the point of this passage. Jesus came to atone. He came to put an end to sin. He came to give us his everlasting righteousness. And here's how we receive that. One little word. It's by faith. It's by faith. I would plead with you this morning, don't miss Jesus. And the way that you don't miss Jesus is by understanding the details or by having a list of things to do in your Christian life. But it's by faith, by putting all of your hope in him, by surrendering your ideas, your hopes, your dreams, and your goals to his. Don't miss Jesus in this, but be ready. Every week we participate in this meal called communion. It's a remembrance and a reminder. It's a foreshadowing of a better home that we're gonna have with Christ. It's a foreshadowing of a better meal that we're gonna share with the lamb. So I'd ask you this morning as we come that we would be preparing our hearts for home in the same way that here God was preparing the hearts of the exiles for home. May he be preparing our hearts for home. Because like we saw at the very beginning, he said, you are greatly loved. That's our hope. That's our stay. However you came in this morning, dealing with struggles, or if you were distracted, or if you were tired, maybe, maybe you're like me and you got off a, a plane at, at 1030 last night. And you're like, man, this, man I, can, I can barely listen to what he's saying. Man, I'm worried about things that are happening at home. Man, I don't have time for Jesus. He's on the back burner, whatever it is. Can I tell you that you are greatly loved and he invites you into his presence. 
He has given you the Holy Spirit. You have his power. You are greatly loved. Let's be reminded of that true and better home. So as we participate and partake of communion, we're reminded of what Jesus Christ has done, of his body that was broken for us, of his perfect righteousness, of his blood that was shed to cover us. We also have the chance to look forward when we're gonna see him face to face and we're gonna be with him for all time because you are greatly loved. And so let's celebrate that this morning. We get to celebrate that in joy. We get to bring our sin before him and say, here's what I've been dealing with. Here's, here are the ways that I've run from you, the idolatry that I've put before you. Here's my disobedience. God, I want you. And he gladly says, here, you can have all of me. You are greatly loved. Family, you're invited to join me even now.